Hello, race fans, and welcome to another edition of the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. I am your host, Scott Stiller. Coming up on this week's podcast, we'll talk to one of the hottest sprint car drivers on the planet, Aaron Reitzel, who races on the Ollie's Bargain Outlet All-Star Circuit of Champions Tour. We'll also talk to Matthew Dillner of Dirty Mo Media. You know Matthew from the Dale Jr. Download. We'll also check in with Chip Ganassi, and we will also talk about fan responsibilities if you're going to the 104th running of the Indianapolis 500. On the pole position is the two-time and defending all-star sprint car champion, Aaron Reitzel, who's getting ready for a busy weekend. Joining us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast from the Ollie's Bargain Outlet All-Star Circuit of Champions, the two-time defending champion and current point leader, Aaron Reitzel. Aaron, thanks for joining us. Yeah, no problem. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're hot off the wind at Knoxville Saturday, Christmas in July. How'd that go? Uh, It went great. Um, We were able to come out here and uh, run two cars and do a little bit of testing and... um, yeah, I mean, uh, everything, it was a smooth night, uh, got quick time, um, started third in the feature, was able to um, capitalize on a re, uh, restart after three laps and jump to the lead and uh, never looked back from there. And nothing like tasting the victory lane, without a doubt. For folks not familiar with your career, how did you first become a race fan? What was your first introduction to racing? I grew up uh, with a racing family, so I've been around some sort of racing from day one, either watching NASCAR on TV or something, and uh, my dad raced a little bit when I was growing up, and uh, I got into a go-kart probably when I was five or six, and didn't really do it full-time, just played around with it a little bit, and then uh, probably started racing more full-time when I was eight or seven, and uh, what they call a junior sprint, and Ran that for a little while, and then uh, probably 2002, jumped in a restrictor and micro, and uh, ran micros until about uh, 2000 and 2008 or 2009. It was my first full season in a 360 sprint car, ran ASCS stuff, and then uh, didn't get into uh, 410s until actually 2018. And when you jumped into the 410, the last couple of years, you've been running the All-Stars, and... Uh, you know, you captured the championship as a rookie, and you won nine races that year, 16 races you won last year, and route to your second championship. So it seems like you settled in pretty comfortably. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a good uh, ride so far. Um, just uh, very fortunate and blessed to have uh, good people between uh, you know, our owners, the Boffmans. Um, they, do, they do everything that it takes for us to be competitive, and then we have great sponsors that also do their part and there are a really big part in our team, uh, between Falcons brothers and, uh, Fisher and Dissolvoy. Uh, we had just have a lot of great partners that allow us to, uh, go out and be competitive and make my job a little bit easier. You're leading the points championship this year. You guys just rolled through Ohio sprint, uh, speed week a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you made a trip through Pennsylvania as well. Talk a little bit about the Ohio Pennsylvania swing and, uh, how you guys fared in that. It wasn't, it seemed to be a pretty good couple of weeks for you. Yeah, it was that, uh, we definitely did a lot of racing. There was one stretch where we did, 
um, between running PA Speed Week and then going over to Ohio Speed Week. You know, not none of them rained out. So there was one stretch where we did 14 races in 16 days. So that was uh, probably the most racing I've ever done. But it was it was pretty cool to do. Um, it went pretty good. We were able to. We only got one win. We would have liked to got more than that. We were in contention for a few other wins and um, just, you know, everything just didn't play out. Um, and, but we were consistent. We were almost on the podium every night and came away with the Speed Week Championship. So that was pretty cool. If it wasn't for a guy named Larson, you, you probably would have walked away with it. I, I think some of the guys in sprint cars wouldn't mind seeing him go back to NASCAR. Yeah, no, I think I've finished second to him four times now. So, yeah, uh, I think uh, I think uh, he is uh, really sorry for what he said, and uh, NASCAR land needs to let him come back. <laughs> it's difficult when you're racing someone like that because racing so much, uh, from what I'm talking to other drivers and, and crew members and things like that, momentum is such a big thing in racing, and right now, he seems to have some of that going for him. And when you have that ball of momentum rolling, it's like sometimes you can't do anything wrong. Yeah, yeah, it is definitely like that. I mean, we had, uh, it's kind of how it was for us, except for the wind port portion uh, during Ohio Speed Week. And, you know, there was times we'd qualify bad, but then we would get through our, heat, get a lucky break in the heat race or something, get through the heat. So, um, yeah, I mean, momentum, luck. At all, all of it plays a little part of it, but um, you know he's all in all, he has a little bit of luck on his side. He's such a talented racer; he's going to be really hard to beat. You're a talented racer in your own right, and winning the two back to back championships in the All Stars is no easy feat. Talk a little bit about why you like running the All Star Circuit. Uh, it just made sense for us. Um, kind of as a, the Boffman's kind of being a first and me being first time full time with the four tens. And, uh, it was still a really good, uh, paying series. Um, it wasn't as grueling as a schedule. So we were able to kind of get in and, uh, you know, learn a little bit more before we just, you know, go jumping straight into the outlaws or something like that. And, um, you still run around with a series, so it makes it a lot easier on the owners when uh, we're out here getting tow money and um, you know championship money at the end of the year and contingency stuff. So uh, All Stars was just really the only thing that made sense, and uh, it's, it's been a good choice so far. I know some of the local 410 drivers are trying to enter some of the local all-star races around Pennsylvania and Ohio, and the uh, all-stars trip to Lernerville was canceled earlier this year, so we're hoping it gets rescheduled and you guys make a swing back through here at some point in time later in the year. But what advice would you give to some of our local 410 guys that are trying to do these one-offs against the all-stars? I mean, just basically just got to do, you know, if you run, if you run locally, you just got to do what you do every weekend. Um, there's really nothing different. You just, uh, you know, there's might just be a few extra good guys where, um, the you know, between, uh, the travelers and then a few other others will come in. So you, I mean, it's definitely gonna be a little bit harder, but just do what you do every weekend. And, uh, Drive as hard as you can and should be fine. 
The All-Stars have coming up in the next uh, couple of days. You guys are at Plymouth. Then you go to 34 Raceway and then Knoxville. Talk a little bit about each one of those tracks. And before we get that, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about Knoxville. So let's talk about Plymouth and 34 and your experience at those tracks. Plymouth has been a pretty cool place. It's a little it's a little boring. Um, last time we were there, it was really good. It was um, slick and wide, and uh, it was a fun place. Uh, 34, 34 is kind of the same way when it, uh, it's, a, it's not really a bull ring, but, um, when it starts to get slick and wide, it's a lot of fun. Uh, it can be a, uh, it can also be a wet cowboy up type track. So, uh, we're fine with either one of those. Um, and then, you know, of course, Knoxville, Knoxville is just one of a kind. There's Knox, Knoxville is one of the three that's just a really uh, special place that doesn't seem to matter what the weather conditions are. They uh, they make it make a really good race. You said one of the three. What would the other two be? Eldora and Port Royal. Port Royal, since it, I mean it's not too far from Pittsburgh. I always try and tell the local fans you need you need to take a ride out to Port Royal to the Speed Palace because it's a really cool little track. Uh, Port Royal is one of a kind. Uh, that's honestly that's the number one on my list. Knoxville is number one on my list for something that I want to win, but uh, Port Royal is the number one racetrack on my favorite list. Where just it's uh, just everything about it, being in the little town that it's in, that's pretty neat, and then the racing that it puts on, and between Steve Steinley and Steve O'Neill, how uh, you know thankful they are to have just fans and drivers, and how much they put back into it. It's it's just uh, an amazing place. It's definitely one that. Uh, once you go to, you'll uh, definitely want to go back. Yeah, with the crazy pandemic we've been dealing with and and the restrictions on some of the, uh, like Lernerville and Pittsburgh's Pennsylvania Motor Speedway, they had a couple of restrictions. And because uh, they're closer to the epicenter of Pittsburgh, uh, they couldn't run some races, whereas because of Port Royal's location, they were able to run a few and I encourage encourage the local fans, you know, take a take a ride on a Friday or Saturday night and go out and check out the shows there. And I think it's super important right now as more and more of these tracks open. We really need the fans to turn out to support the tracks and the racers because it's been a, a difficult year. Yeah, it really has. And, uh, you know, surprise, uh, I wouldn't even say surprisingly. I mean, I feel like uh, I've seen more fans this year than I have ever seen just, uh, getting out and supporting local racing. And, um, just, I'm sure most of them were just ready to get out of the house in general, but there's just been a ton of fans everywhere we've gone out supporting. Um, I know uh, the television broadcast, there's been a bunch of subscribers for that too. So I feel like, uh, that everyone has been doing a really good job on, uh, support racing this year. Well, that's great to hear. Let's talk about Knoxville. I know you want to knock that one off your list. Started on the pole last year and then fell back a couple of spots and couldn't bring it home. So when you look back on that or, you know, you have to treat every race as it comes each and every race. But uh, what do you got to do to check that one off your list? Um, I think we just had to be a little bit better as uh, me as a driver and the team in general, I think we all just kind of let the race get to us and didn't treat it like another race. Uh, we um, just, you know, 
probably over focused on everything a little bit and uh yeah just kind of let that get to us a little bit and um probably just have to get our car a little bit better um and we've been working hard at that and it seems to be seems that we've kind of hit on something a little bit it's always different whenever everyone's there and you know track conditions aren't the same but uh i feel like um if we just keep working at it you know i know how bad i want to win it and i know how bad this team wants to win it so if everyone just keeps focusing like that i think we'll uh maybe one day be able to win the nationals does the christmas in july win can uh, you take anything from that victory or anything you ran that night does that apply or does all that change because you're gonna have so many more or people with the track uh, i think anything Anytime you go to Knoxville, you can always take, you can always get something good from it. It's such a unique place that uh, it's a one of a kind racetrack, and the way it races, where the turns are longer than the straightaways. And um, anytime you run there, you can get a, a, a note that's going to help. If you can check that one off your list, what would that personally mean to you? <laughs> that would, uh, on, honestly, I'd feel like. Uh, the day that I retired racing that I accomplished something in the sport. Well, two championships is nothing to, to shake your hat at. I mean, no, no, but that's just that, you know, there's nothing. I don't feel, I don't feel like there's nothing bigger than winning the Knoxville national. So you win that it, you, you really accomplished something in the sport. Well, I would agree with you there. It's going to happen for you because you're one of those guys who, uh, you know, the last couple of years, let's just face facts. If it wasn't for the kind of year Larson's been having, you, you've got uh, more than 25 wins over the last two plus seasons, which is not easy in any series. It, it's definitely not. It, we've had a phenomenal year and we've definitely have accomplished a lot, but when you just bring the nationals into the category, it's, uh, it's just, you know, you start talking about a whole nother level. No, there's no doubt about that. That's that's one of those crown jewel events, and it's it's definitely, a, uh, you know, something that I'm you know, talking to other drivers, and it really doesn't matter what series it is. There's always an event that there's different series that guys want to win, and they'd, uh, they'd trade a championship to get a victory at one of those tracks. Would you be willing to do that? No, absolutely. As a driver, you always have your few that you want to win, and the only one that I've got so far is the Tuscarora. I really wanted to win that one. And that was probably second on my list on, on races to win. So what I got left is Nationals and Kings Roll. Well, we look forward to seeing how you do here in the next couple of days. We really appreciate you taking time out. You guys can't go to the track every week without help from sponsors and family. So uh, just while you have a few minutes here, I want you to give a shout out to everybody who helps you out. Yeah, of course. Uh, my family, for one, my wife, my kids. Uh, I know it's uh, going up and down the road and uh, leaving them at home a lot's tough. So they, uh, they're they definitely a big part of my racing. And uh, Mike and Josh Boffman and their entire families for everything that they do for me and my family. And uh, John, Steve Falkins, Falkin Brothers Trucking, Kurt, Devin Fisher with Fisher Body Shop, uh, Scotty McDonald with Zavaloy. Um, all of our uh, all of our great uh partners on uh on our products between triple x rider racing engines integra shocks momentum racing suspensions wellwood brakes al drive lines bk titanium bolts elite wings uh we just have a lot of great uh people that uh make this team do what it does aaron reitzel 
two-time All-Star Circuit of Champions. Champion, thanks for taking time out. We know you guys are busy, and we appreciate the time. Yep, thank you, guys. If it wasn't for a guy named Kyle Larson, the hottest driver in sprint cars would be Reitzel, who has 32 All-Star wins since 2018. Some interesting news from the motorsports world this week. Cole Pern is joining Ed Carpenter Racing. Paul Tracy and Tony Kanaan are joining Tony Stewart and Ray Evernham's new SRX Racing. Jimmy Johnson jumped in the cockpit and wanted Chip Ganassi Racing's Indy cars. The road to Indy was racing at Mid-Ohio, and Sharon Speedway season is now on hold thanks to COVID-19. Details on these stories and all of the racing news can be found on our website, pittsburghracingnow.com. So excited about our next guest and Dirty Mo Media's newest project. One of our featured guests this week on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast is the co-host and executive producer of one of the coolest shows to hit television, Lost Speedways. You guys know him from the Dale Jr. Download and from Dirty Mo Media. We welcome Matthew Dillner to the show. Matthew, thanks for joining us. Hey, what's up, bud? How you doing? We're doing great, and we're super excited to have you on the program. I'm excited to be on it, man. Uh, you guys have a cool little show, and uh, you know it's cool that you're on radio networks too, and all this stuff. And it's a uh, um, good, good, good racing scene up there too, man. Yeah, we have a pretty cool uh, racing scene up here in Western Pennsylvania, and we extend. I just over. don't like your hockey team. You know, I just don't <laughs> like your hockey teams. I'm sorry, everybody's going to turn it off now. I'm a diehard Islanders guy, so uh, I'll just put that out there. Hey, we've, we've been fortunate with, with a couple of draft picks named Lemieux and Crosby. We've been able to uh, parlay that into a little bit of success. That's for sure, but uh, we had your number last year. Yeah, no doubt. I'll, I'll give you that. And then the Flyers got us yesterday in an exhibition game, of all people. I think we can both universally hate the Flyers, can't we? Oh, yeah. You and I have that in common big time, buddy. Awesome. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks for joining us. We're super excited about uh, the new show that is on NBC's Peacock TV. That's the new streaming service, Lost Speedways, because we have a few tracks that have gone by the wayside up here. And when I watched the first episode, it brought back so many memories for me. My sister used to live in Mecklenburg County right off of Gibbon Road. And basically oh. across Old Statesville Road from the Metrolina Expo and Metrolina Speedway. So when I saw yeah, that, that episode, it uh, I mean, we went there. So it brought back so many memories. And then just watching you and Dale Jr. kind of do your thing. So I want to rewind a little bit. How did you guys come up with the idea of Lost Speedways? Well, first I'll tell you, based off of what you said about Metrolina, I got to go there too in 1998 at Japan. And I remember walking up that hill um, after getting my ticket. And um, I remember uh, that. And then I re- you know, walking up the hill with Dale in the show brought back a lot of memories. And then, uh, you know, just about a month ago, I'm going and seeing that same hill and it's completely bulldozed and leveled and, and the track's gone. Um, it's just, uh, you know, kind of the point why we do this. So, um, to capture that history before it's completely gone. But, uh, yeah, Dale and I, uh, back to your question, Dale and I have known each other. We've worked around each other uh, since probably 1998 um, in, in Cup Series Garage, you know, the uh, Xfinity and Cup Series Garage. And, and uh, yeah, we knew each other, you know, uh, just weren't like close friends or nothing. And, uh, and 
suddenly I was doing this lost seaway stuff on Facebook and Twitter and the internet and doing a calendar and gal kind of really dug it. And, you know, that kind of created a little friendship between us, you know, start out just text messaging and stuff like that, and being in different groups. And, um, uh, next thing you know, um, you know, we just both realized we had the same hobby. We, we had the same passion, this nerdy obsession with, uh, mapping lost speedways and him, it was mapping me it was mapping and exploring. And then, uh, later on down the road, man, I uh, got let go by NASCAR and Dale and Mike Davis over there at Dirty Mo Media, the first people to call me and, uh, give me a chance to put food on my table for my family, which was, I was incredibly grateful for. And then, uh, it, it's just, uh, snowballed and I can't say it's so surreal that this dream is, is now a reality and it's on TV and I couldn't be any more, uh, grateful. So for the f- f- fans who are listening that haven't seen it, walk them through exactly what you guys are doing. You said you're mapping old speedways, and in your first episode, you went and visited the old Metrolina Speedway, which, uh, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, has unfortunately now been bulldozed over, and that was whole, all part of an exposition park that was there. I, uh, I, I think I have a hall tree downstairs that my wife bought at the Metrolina Expo, so... <laughs> Uh, yeah, well, you know, the the whole point of the show is to document history before it's gone and to tell stories, um, you know, ab- about these uh, racetracks that are shuttered and, and covered in weeds and being recaptured by nature. Um, and the fun thing is, you know, we knew all along, you know, this show would have a, hot, a much wider reach than just racing people or racing historians. Um, you know, this, this, this show can, um, can, can, you know, be attractive to, to people outside of racing. It's, it's a lot about American culture and places that meant something to you. Uh, whether it's a ballpark you grew up at, man, or, um, you know, or, or just some memory from your childhood, uh, all that comes racing back, you know, when you're exploring these, these places that, you know, have these, they're covered in weeds, but they have these mysterious stories and you're bringing people back that location and the people that were there and talking with them and it's, it's very romantic uh, you know weird kind of uh, trippy melancholy way uh, but for any history buff you know part of the uh, show is about uncovering that history the other part is kind of like a, I don't know I guess you'd say like an American Pickers you know we're, we're literally exploring boots on the ground these locations and uh, unearthing history and uh, it's, it's it's definitely a magical combination, and I'm so, so happy that Dale convinced NBC to do this show uh, on the Peacock, and um, the fact that they said yes uh, is incredible, and now we're just working our butts off to, uh, to make it happen, and, and now we're sitting back right now and enjoying uh, the reaction, so it's been great. Well, the fruits of the labor, the, 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 it's been tremendous what I've seen so far. I was, uh, I started binge watching it the other day and my wife started laughing. What was your favorite episode so far? Well, I got a, the Metrolina Expo, uh, the Metrolina Speedway episode because I'd been yeah. there. You know what I mean? So it, yeah. it, it's amazing how, and it, it really could be anything in life that you talk about, but when it hits on something that you have that personal connection to, uh, it, it drives it home a little bit more. One of the things that strikes me when I'm talking to older retired drivers is how quickly, and it really, even old retired athletes and uh, people that have been involved in something, like we were just talking the other day at the station about uh, the Q Creek Mine 
rescue that happened 18 years ago where nine miners got trapped yeah. over in Somerset, Pennsylvania. And it's amazing how the people that were involved in the whole deal remember it like it was yesterday. And that was what struck me. And that's one of the things that's striking me about your series is that when you're talking to people, you know, they 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 instantly recall it or that you know that they can remember it and that's really what you guys are capturing yeah i mean history matters uh to, to everybody you know whether it's your family history or or you know something you grew up with you're a big you know pittsburgh pirates fan up there or something uh you know things things matter from the past and some of these athletes like you said you know um you know, they, they've got these great memories and, and re, re, incredible stories that haven't been told. And some of them think they've been forgotten. You know, these places have been forgotten. These people have been forgotten. Well, we're, we're bringing that to life, man. And, uh, in a really colorful way. Um, and it's, it's, we're, we're pretty proud here because we've got a small group of us, to be honest with you. Everybody would think, you know, we're the New York Yankees because we're, uh, you know, got the big network and, and Dale Earnhardt Jr. But, uh, you, you got a racing crowd there, so they'll get this analogy, and it's something that I'm really proud of. I told Dale, I'm like, man, everybody thinks we're rolling in with the high-dollar stacker rig, you know, with the two two cars up on top and the best of everything and the engineers, and we're rolling in with an open trailer and a tire rack and kicking their butt. You know, we've got a group of, like, you know, I'd say six or seven super talented guys that fought through a pandemic uh, to, to meet our deadline for this show, a deadline that some studio shows didn't make. Um, and we did it from our houses, you know, on laptops, you know, overnight work and, you know, a uh, few just really talented people with a passion, uh, to tell these stories. And, and it's something that I'm super, super, super proud of. Uh, I'm a short track guy, man. I grew up at, uh, you know, with, uh, wooden bleachers and splinters in my butt, you know, all across the darn East coast chasing races. And, uh, so I have a passion for the sport, but I love when we can introduce the sport and the meaning of the sport and the meaning of the nostalgia and the meaning of the history to even people that aren't like me. And that's just as important. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. How did you get your, I mean, where'd you grow up? I know you're very accomplished in your media career, uh, working with NASCAR and, uh, you've done it for years. You've won some awards. So where'd you grow up and how did you first fall in love with racing? I'm just a simple kid from uh, Long Island, New York, and, uh, you know, grew up going to Isle Speedway and Riverhead Raceway and driving Friday night three hours up to Connecticut to Stafford Motor Speedway, chasing modifieds, and, you know, every vacation we had as children centered around racing. We'd travel from, uh, you know, Florida to, to Maine uh, chasing races as a family, so uh, that's how I was kind of introduced to the sport. My dad was a local racer before I was born. Um, gave it up to put milk food on the table. Uh, but our family's always had a passion for racing. And, um, you know, I lost Isle Seaway, my home track in 1984. And it really, really birthed a, a passion, an inner passion for memories and nostalgia and history um, that, that, you know, I didn't realize at the time how much it meant until now I'm older. Um, you know, in every aspect of your life, you know, whether it's your, you're at your Christmas uh, celebration years ago with my grandparents, you know, when they were still alive to, to spending time with my family is there's a, there's a subconscious level of, you know, uh, capturing memories and nostalgia within my, the, you know, corners of my brain. Um, you know, and I think a lot of that stemmed from losing something that was so important to me at an early uh, age. So, you know, that kind of transforms into what we're doing now in ways, uh, at least mentally for me, 
Uh, I know we all have our reasons for, for wanting to do the show and Dale has a fascination with, uh, old raceways and old stories. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's all come together in a pretty, pretty, pretty cool way. <laughs> all right. We kind of touched on the first episode a little bit to yep. whet everyone's appetite who hasn't had a chance to check it out. Give us a little sneak peek into some of the uh, other episodes. I don't want to give every, anything away per se, but I want to kind of draw everybody in a little bit. So what else can we expect uh, other than the first episode from Metrolina? Without giving it away, I mean, the second episode, man, we're walking around a track uh, that has, this incredible history and incredible visual remains. Uh, and then we uncover this story of a moonshine spill that was buried deep underneath the banking of turn number three at this racetrack and, and, and was subject to a federal bus. Um, and we, we uncover and, and tell that story. You know, then we go to a, 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 a monster three mile road course that nobody knew even existed. It only held one NASCAR race and it was once, going to be the largest motorsports venue in the world um and and people drive on it with their street cars every day and don't know it uh we go to a a, a ballpark that somehow survived suburban expansion in, in patterson new jersey uh that hosted midget racing and was like the epicenter of the midget race car uh you know uh, explosion uh in the 40s uh 1940s so history back then and this incredible stadium that has a a history great history of uh, negro league baseball one of the few remaining like tangible places you could go uh that 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 you know has that great history of that time in baseball history that you know kind of shows like we we talked about it the absurdity of the segregation but these ball players that were absolute superstars uh so it's got this multicultural multi uh sports um feel to this place and it's still there somehow it's incredible uh and then uh the final piece i'll give you is this place in indiana that we uh uh, went and explored called jungle park speedway with this incredible incredible historic uh covered grandstand and a history that is so dark and so mysterious and full of so much tragedy and we actually got the chance to talk to a 93 year old the last remaining uh, left living driver to dare the, the high banks there. Um, his story and the other stories we uncovered at Jungle Park were absolutely chilling. Uh, so it's, it's a wide array of different motorsports venues and stories and uh, from, from scars, myths, uh, tragedies to, to uh, great, great stories and great characters. And it's, it's, a, it's a darn roller coaster, man. You know, some of this, uh, talking to the older drivers and i mean that's the, uh, the our greatest generation and with each passing day we're losing more and more of them so i think what you guys are doing by talking to them and capturing and and getting their thoughts and their feelings and and their recollection of of their history is is just phenomenal and and a tip of the cap the production's top notch as well well thank you man i mean uh when you said that i immediately thought of jack ingram uh, you know, the former uh, Bush Series, Xfinity Series, whatever you want to call it, uh, champion, uh, Hall of Famer. We, we got a chance to go over from our episode at New Asheville Speedway and talk to Jack and kind of kind of talk about a rivalry and talk about an incident that really hasn't been talked about that much out in the open. 
uh, after all these years, um, to kind of get that out there, um, was just special. I mean, I just remember going there with Dale and both of us being like, I can't believe we're going to Jack's. I can't believe we're going to go talk about this. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of moments in this year's show and, and uh, that are, are forever memories for us, you know, getting an opportunity to sit down with, you know, Jack Ingram, a uh, legend, um, or Rex White, you know, walk around and, and stand where, where he once raced um, and, and get really emotional and get really deep on, you know, things like uh, the passing of Fireball Roberts. Uh, just uh, some of these stories are just something I'll, I'll never forget, you know, getting, getting to walk around Okanichi Speedway with Richard Petty. You know, there's one point I'm sitting on a park bench during the shoot or waiting uh, for nighttime to come for a scene and and uh, one of the historians, Frank Craig, great guy, comes up to me. He's like, hey, I'm going to sit with you. What you thinking about, man? Because I was alone. And I said to him, I'm like, you know, I've worked in this sport for so long. But, you know, I'm just sitting here thinking, what would the eight-year-old me think? You know, walking around a lost speedway with Richard Petty, what would the eight-year-old me think? And, you know, the eight-year-old me would be pretty giddy with excitement. And like that's, those are the moments you realize how blessed you are uh, to be doing what you're doing. And you don't take for granted. Uh, you don't you don't uh, get too caught up in it, and and you really really try to appreciate the ride, and and uh, you know and not get swept up too much in it, and, and do your best uh, to have a great attitude about it. You know. Well, it's funny because I uh, in my uh, desk drawer of old media clips, one of the things that is in there is a tape from the first time I interviewed Junior when he was driving the AC Delco Bush car. He did an appearance ah. up at Jennerstown Speedway, and I still have it to this day. And uh, my wife's like, what are you going to do with that? I said, i got to find out a way to digitize it. I said, because it's just so yeah. cool. I said, because it's it's a young race car driver talking about, and, and one of the, some of the most precious stuff on, on the tape is Dale talking about how his dad, you know, he said, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. He said, my dad used to make yeah. me sweep up the shop floor. And I mean, some of that stuff is just priceless. And to see all that he's accomplished and now to see him involved on our side of the business is awesome because I, I think it just gives a unique perspective for folks. Well, we'll, uh, we'll talk or something the next week or so. You've got my number, man. And uh, send it on down. We'll digitize it for sure for you and ship it back up to you. So uh, that would be awesome. So. Uh, all that history and stuff is something we all appreciate. And, uh, you know, even, even what you do, uh, right here, there's going to be a, come a time and day that, you know, what you're doing and the stories you're getting out there, uh, have value too. And, um, you know, we're all learning, you know, and I'm 44 years old and I'm not a racing historian. I'm a racing history buff. And I, I love just being a sponge and learning and learning and learning. And, you know, when you stop learning, you die. And uh, that's 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 what's so great about capturing all this stuff and saving a lot of stuff uh, is it's a constant uh, constant way we can keep on learning. That's a great point for folks that want to follow you guys on social media. Real quick, uh, what are the social media platforms uh, that they should be following? Well, of course, go subscribe to TikTok TV. You know, right now it's free, man. You know, so uh, even if you don't have a way to, to stream television if you're just on cable or satellite then you can even get it on your ipad uh and watch it uh and right now it's free so go for it you know go check it out sign up and and, and watch the eight episodes 
on social media, man, it's really easy. I'm Matthew Dillner. Um, it's not hard to find me. I don't have any trick names. And, of course, Dale Earnhardt Jr. and Dirty Mo Media is our company. Uh, and, and it's not a huge company. It's just a bunch of really talented, uh, dedicated folks uh, that are, are dear friends now. And, and we're, uh, we're all doing this together. It's a small effort to put forth a huge project. And we're super, super proud of it. And um, and then you know also I have my Lost Speedway stuff I do on Facebook and Twitter also that's at Lost Speedway. Um, just trying to raise awareness to history for the history of our sport um, and and just get facts and knowledge and everything out there. Whether it's somebody's picture they have of their dad racing at a, at Santa Fe Speedway um, or you know uh, you know some some artifact or whatever or just some memories, it's great to share it out there and and everybody learn from it. Well, I got to give you guys props on what you guys did with this. Will there be a season two? Aha, that's the ultimate question. Uh, right now, I am praying there's a season two, and I am doing my diligence to already um, start thinking about episodes. We've got over 2,000 tracks mapped. Me and my buddies, Bobby Marcos, Kyle Rizak, and Dale, we've got a, a map that's absurd. Uh, so we have plenty to choose from. We just want to pick the ones that have the best stories. Do we have a season two? No, uh, we do not. Uh, we'll be, we'll be, re- we'll be, will we be ready if Peacock gives us a season two? You darn straight, we will because we're uh, we're working our butts off uh, already. So um, yeah, you know, get the word out there, man. You're doing it for us uh, by doing the show uh, there in that Pittsburgh market. You know. Uh, uh, you know, letting those people know about it, you know, is, is just as important as the social media reaction we're getting and people telling Peacock uh, that they love the show. Because, man, we, we stuck our necks out there. Peacock did, too. You know, you should, you don't see any other big sports history shows on that network. Uh, it's important that y'all are telling Peacock how much you like the show. And uh, that's why I appreciate it, you know, the social media reaction. And then even doing this right here with you, but... Um, is, is super cool and super, super important to get a season two. Well, we appreciate you taking time out. We'd love to have your boss on. He's got some unique connections to Pittsburgh. I was listening to the download one day where he was talking about his ancestry and how some of the Earnhardts yeah. settled in Philadelphia and in Pittsburgh. And yeah, you know, I, I know he's he's been up here in town many a times uh, when he uh, had to go through uh, everything he dealt with with his concussions. And uh, he's yeah. very familiar with uh, Mickey Collins and the great job that they do over at UPMC. So we'd love to have him on at some point in time. And if you guys are, are up this way doing an episode of Lost Speedways or or if you guys are in the area, reach out to us. We'd love to hook up with you. Not a problem, man. Don't let this uh, be the only time we talk. You got my number, man. Uh, stay in touch. Don't be a stranger. And uh, to anybody out there that's watched the show, uh, I hope you don't take this as a PR line. Uh, from the bottom of my heart, I appreciate it very much. Well, we appreciate uh, the job you guys did, and uh, we really appreciate you taking time out. Matthew Dillner, co-host, executive producer of Lost Speedways. You also know him from Dirty Mo Media and the Dale Jr. Download. Thanks for taking time out to join us on the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. Great talking with Matthew Dillner, and if you haven't checked out Lost Speedways, you need to. It's excellent. And it made me think about the lost speedways around our area, like Greater Pittsburgh Speedway in Clinton. Does anybody remember that? Or how about Motordrome down in Smithton? Speaking of lost speedways, are you old enough to remember Heidelberg Raceway? A NASCAR historian sent out a tweet about Heidelberg that included a picture of Rex White 
Ned Jarrett, and Lee Petty battling on the track. Chip Ganassi retweeted that tweet and commented about Heidelberg, so I had to give Chip a call. Joining us, Chip Ganassi. Chip, you sent out a tweet the other night that caught my attention, and I think it caught a lot of local race fans' attention. It was a tweet that that a NASCAR historian sent out with Lee Petty, uh, Richard Petty, Ned Jarrett, and Rex White racing at Heidelberg Raceway, and your family has an interesting connection to Heidelberg. Tell me about it. Well, that's a great story, Scott. Thanks for asking. It's, um, you know... Everybody knows where, you know, every Pittsburgher knows where Heidelberg is. But a lot of people know there was a great racetrack there where the shopping center is now. And, uh, you know, right down, you used to be able to see it. In fact, when they built 79 there, you used to be able to look down from 79 and you'd see the lights there, you know, and, and, and Heidelberg was known for having the best lighting in the country, the best lights. And, you know, it was, it was dirt and then it was asphalt and it was a great, great, racetrack with a lot a lot of history there and uh so it's kind of interesting as a story because i i started racing you know in my late teens and uh and uh you know it wasn't until one day i was racing cars you know as an amateur somewhere and uh i was like on my way home from somewhere with my father in the car and we drove on 79 there we were coming back to Pittsburgh, and uh, you know, it looked. I said, you know, Heidelberg Raceway. I said, yeah, I remember that as a little kid. Dad, he goes, said, you know, your mother and I went on our first date there. I said, really? He said, yes. And I and and I said, I didn't know you were race fans. And he said, I didn't know we were either. He said, in fact, that was the only time we went there. He said, so so the the the, the funny part of the story is that. On their first date, they went to Heidelberg Raceway. The next time they were at a racetrack, I was driving in it in the race. Oh, that is so. You know, it, 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 so it always brought a chuckle in our household. You know, after that, that you know that my parents weren't these real race fans, but they plant, there was this seed somehow planted uh, from their very first date about racing in our family. That, that no one ever knew about until, you know, 18 years later or something when I was in my first car race. So let me get this straight. Everyone that has ever been to the racetrack, uh, when your teams were racing, would see your dad, one of the most uh, gregarious guys anyone could ever meet, and uh, identified with everybody from the race fans up to the stewards, drivers, owners, just an absolutely gem of a man. I always thought he was uh, just seeing him around the track and how much he enjoyed it. I always thought he was a race fan. You know, not really. And it's kind of an interesting story how he got, you know, everybody knows the story of he, he, he was in Indianapolis then in 1963. So I would have been five years old or something. And he went there for, to an equipment auction and took a tour of the track, you know, took the bus tour around Indianapolis speedway there. And he came home with an eight millimeter film of the 1963 race. And, uh, and everybody's heard that story about me then meeting Parnelli and became friends with Parnelli and he won the 63 race. And, you know, I grew up to, to be in the race and everything. So it was, it's a great story, but yeah, but my father was not really a, a race fan. You know, he, he had his head down there. Anybody that knew him knew that he, you know, his, 
his country club, his his his, his wife, his girlfriend. It, it was all work. He, he didn't. That was all bottled up into work. He didn't. Uh, he didn't have any. Uh, he didn't have any. He didn't. He didn't do much for work, but he enjoyed his work and he enjoyed uh, enjoyed the action of working. I guess. So, conversely, when your your mother, I, I, it, it's surprising to me. That, so, your mother goes with him on the first date. Did she ever talk about it? Yeah, just only after that. You know that that you know like it was. Uh, you know she she remembered that she went there on the first date, but uh, but she didn't remember much else. She just you know just that. Uh, it was a, it was a, oh, I think my mother, I think the, the, the takeaway from my mother's view of it was that she wasn't overly impressed with my dad on the first date. <laughs> oh, that is priceless. So then, yes. uh, when did you go to your first race as a fan? Well, my first car race I attended was actually, a, you know, the drag races at Keystone. You know, it used to be Keystone Raceway Park up in New Alexandria. I was 12 years old living in Manesson at the time. And uh, the kid across the street from me, Jay Sturbeck, had a, had a, uh, a 1968 Chevelle uh, that he bought from Don Yanko. Then he had a 69 Chevelle from Yanko. And he took me to the drag races with him. And uh, it was just him and I. And, uh, and uh, interestingly, that's where I... I and, at that first race, I always kid my buddy Don Prudhomme because he was there with uh, McHugh and Tom McHugh and the Mongoose. It was the Mongoose and the Snake. We had a, you know, had one of their traveling road shows there, and uh, they were at Keystone when I was there for my first race. And, uh, and so it was ironic that years later I then got to know and become friends with Snake. And uh, so, yeah, just. Uh, yeah, twelve years old was my first. My first racetrack was at Keystone Raceway up in New Alexandria. When did you? Uh, I know you raced motorcycles. You started out. You always talk about your fossil fueled youth with go karts and motorcycles. And when mm-hmm. did you first jump into a car to race it? I uh, would say it was nineteen seventy. Well. Uh, the, the first actual sanctioned race I was in was in the fall of 1976. So it was in the fall of 76. I did one race up at Nelson Ledges. And then I, then in, then in, uh, 77, I, I got real serious about racing Formula Ford in, uh, you know, around at Nelson Ledges, Watkins Glen, Summit Point, went to those places, you know, those, for those, our racing fence. Those are the closest road racing tracks around here. So I was still working in my father's business at the time and kind of doing that on the weekends. Well, how did your mom feel about you getting into racing? Well, she was, she actually, she actually was okay with it because prior to racing cars, I was racing motorcycles. And she didn't like that. You know, she, my mom would pick up the paper and it would say, I was, I was racing motocross, but my mom would pick up the newspaper and it would say, you know, man killed on motorcycle at red light. A man killed sliding off of 
Route 51 on, you know, on a motorcycle and is dead. And I'm like, Mom, that's not what I do. I'm, I'm in the dirt. I'm, 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 you know, it's soft. It's somewhat softer than asphalt. There's no trees, you know, where I, when I land, there's no guardrail. It's, it's, it's a different thing. And she didn't understand that. And uh, so, so she was, she actually liked the idea of racing cars because I had more protection around me than, uh, than, than being just on a motorcycle. Now, and, did, uh, so she, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Sorry. Yeah, no. I mean, she. So that that was kind of the that was kind of the sell job I did to <laughs> with her to get you know to make the transition into cars, and it worked. Now, did that all so, change after your and uh, your accident at Michigan in a little while? Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, a little bit. You know, that she was. It was a sad day that day because I crashed and she was home by herself, and uh, you know the. The neighbors started coming over with coffee and donuts for the house. She was home by herself watching it on TV, and my my father was with me, of course. And uh, so it changed a little bit, but yeah, I mean, she was, you know, yeah, that, that you know, she already knew that by the time I made it to IndyCars as a driver, she already knew that that was a little dangerous, a little more dangerous, yeah. You know, it's interesting to hear the story that they that your parents went to Heidelberg on their first date. Do you remember roughly the year? So that had to be like probably, let's see, probably 1955 or 56, somewhere around there. My sister was born in 1957. No, my sister was born in 1956. So I want to say it was 55 or probably 1955. And when did your parents get married? Uh, good question. I want to say 1955. Yeah. Okay. So it was in the, right. in the fifth, in the mid fifties, roughly mid fifties. Yes. So your dad had, had probably already, he had started Westmoreland paving at that point. Right. Uh, yeah, right around there. I'm not exactly a hundred percent sure where that was actually started, but right around there somewhere. Okay. Just yeah, he hadn't started it when they were married. It was after he was married. I know they started that. Because, I mean, the story of your dad is just an incredible story in its own right of, you know, growing up, uh, I believe, in West Newton, if I'm not mistaken, and just a self-made man who uh, worked hard. Yeah, he hard. was actually in Blythdale, which is on the, you know, right down from West Newton there on the Yachtigany River. That, uh yeah, and all my relatives are from that Yachagany Valley down there, whether it was West Newton or Soutersville, Blythdale, McKeesport. You know, McKeesport was the big city then, you know. That was, that was uh, all my relatives are from down in that area on both sides of my family. They were all coal miners. You know, my both, both of my grandfathers were coal miners down there. So, you know, every I think a lot of race fans don't understand how uh, you know, they just see Chip Ganassi, the team owner, the former driver, and they don't understand all the hard work behind the scenes, both, you know, w w your father to become the accomplished businessman he was and behind every uh, good man is a great woman. And, and the story of your parents helping you is another story in itself. So it's just the way it comes full circle. When I heard the the uh, when I saw the tweet about Heidelberg and, and that's where they went on their first date, I thought, uh, wow, if, if Chip's mom would have turned down Chip's dad, there may not have ever been a, 
uh, uh, right. Right. race. I mean, is it a stretch to say right. that? I don't think so. No, hardly. No, that's not a stretch. No, no, not a stretch at all. Yeah. So here you are, thirtieth year of owning a team, your thirtieth anniversary, and you guys are mm-hmm. off to a pretty good start. Four straight in the IndyCar series, and uh, uh, you guys have done that before. I know Alex and Jimmy won seven in a row back in, I think it was '98. So you guys are off to a good start, and you got to love that. We are, Scott. It's really exciting. I mean, uh, you know, it, it, you know, twenty twenty is such a terrible year for all of us and for some reason the, the one bright spot is our IndyCar team is doing you know is on fire so that's really really nice and uh, really you know something something to look forward to um, and uh, then we're in mid-Ohio after that and then over to Indianapolis for the 500 so it's been really a good thing and, it, and you know the fans they just opened it up to fans fans are starting to come back and the nice thing is how appreciative the fans are about being able to even just come to an event and how into it they are. And, um, it's really great to see, you know, see, see, uh, see some events, you know, that are these outdoor events opening up a little bit and, uh, was, you know, encouraged by that. And, uh, you know, again, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, being safe about it all. And, uh, and I think we're accomplishing that talk on wood. Uh, as far as the NASCAR team goes, Kurt's in the top 10 in points. So, I mean, yeah. that, that's what it's all about there. Yeah, yeah. So, we're, we're pretty happy. And, you know, Matt had a good finish at Indy there. We're, it's the midsummer of racing here, and we're, we're in the thick of it right now. And uh, I just appreciate how the fans have all been and the, um, just just happy to be back uh, going again in this, uh, in this crazy 2020. No doubt about it. And and it's kind of even crazier. You're, you're already working towards 2021. I saw the announcement came out where you added Kyle LaDuke to the Extreme E team to team with Sarah Price. Yes. This is yes. going to be kind of an exciting thing. And it's something that, you know, uh, that's a really interesting concept. It is. It is. I'm looking forward to that. Some, something new for our team to be in that formula of uh, electric racing. But, uh, you know, I think it, in, in some sense, it's going to be a sign of things to come here in the future. So we need to get to be in on the front end of it. Do you, uh, IndyCar goes to some type of a hybrid. Is it going to be 2022? Am I correct? Yeah, I think so. I think in 22, they're talking about a hybrid. Yeah. And yeah. I wanted to touch on one thing because I know sports car racing is firing back up a little bit too. Are are you guys done with sports car racing, or is that something that remains? You know, uh, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe it, it remains on your radar if you can find the right partners. Yeah, yeah, no, it remains on our radar in a big way. We got a lot of we got a lot of quality people there at the race shop in Indianapolis, where that sports car team is based, and uh, we're 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 anxiously uh, trying to get back into sports cars as well. All right, I didn't think you were going to close the door on it, that's for sure. No. no. Awesome. Well, hey, I appreciate you taking the time out. Uh, just s- such a super exciting story about uh, your parents' first date at Heidelberg. So uh, I got a cool piece that uh, I'll put together, and I'll shoot it off to you guys. And uh, as always, I appreciate the time. No problem, Scott. Thanks. Thanks, as always, to Chip for his time and to his team who are always willing to help out Pittsburgh Racing now.
Speaking of Chip's team, Scott Dixon and the number nine PNC Bank team continue to lead the IndyCar Championship standings heading into next week's race at Mid-Ohio, which is now a doubleheader. Dixon leads Team Penske's Simon Pagano by 49 points and third place Joseph Newgarden by 53 points. The race after Mid-Ohio is the Indianapolis 500. The event will be held with fans, but only at 25% capacity. Fans will be given a mask and hand sanitizer when they enter the speedway, and they will be required to wear the mask and maintain social distance. I know a lot of IndyCar fans from Western Pennsylvania are going, so I wanted you to hear from Penske Entertainment Corp. President Mark Miles, Speedway President Doug Bowles, and Global Medical Response Chief Medical Officer Dr. Ed Rack about the precautions being taken and fan responsibilities for this year's Indy 500. The plan we're making public today reflects our commitment to making the health of our fans, our community, and our competitors our highest priority. The approval of the Marion County Board of Health and favorable comments by its director, Dr. Kane, and by Dr. Box, the commissioner of the Indiana State Department of Health, I think reflects the quality and depth of our plan. And we want to say that we appreciate the collaboration we've had with these uh, authorities. The plan represents thousands of hours of work by our staff, along with months of input by these local, state, and other national experts you'll hear more from. We believe it's important that we have a race, that we have this race to set a high standard and an example for how people can come together today under the right procedures. We're re-engineering the way we function in a new normal. In everything we do today, there are risks, but shutting down again creates detrimental health effects and hurts the livelihood of Hoosiers uh, as well. We're proud to be moving forward. Some of the key steps we're taking include running the 500 on August 23rd with spectators at about 25% of capacity. We're going to distribute masks and hand sanitizers to all of our guests, and we're going to require mandatory use of the face mask for everyone. There will be temperature screenings for everybody who comes onto the Indianapolis Motor Speedway and into the track. There'll be distancing throughout the venue, and there's much, much more which you can read about in the detailed nearly 100-page plan that was developed in collaboration with national, state, and local health experts. We want our media, our customers, and all Hoosiers to see the approach we're taking based on expert advice. It appears that many of you have also already reported one of today's headlines, and that is the announcement that local broadcast delay of the race will be lifted this year. Under these unique circumstances, we felt it was the right thing to do. On this call, we also want you to hear from a medical expert and a leader who I've really come to respect and appreciate, uh, who has been guiding a major organization on the front lines of the fight against COVID-19. Dr. Ed Rock is the Chief Medical Officer of Global Medical Response. His direct experience with COVID-19 dates back to the very first cases in the United States, and he's worked on mitigation and response in every part of our country. He's lent his guidance and expertise in important ways to our planning process. He's now going to walk us through the steps being taken at the Indy 500 to support everyone's health and safety with special attention to their effectiveness from a medical and clinical perspective. Dr. Rock has summarized some of this in the COVID-19 targeted event medical strategic plan that I think is linked to the materials you've received. Dr. Rock, thanks for joining us. 
Thank you, Mark. It's obviously a unique time in our history, but also a unique time in medicine where medicine, the evolving science um, and the practice regarding COVID become very important to all of us, to communities, obviously to individual patients, um, and to how we get our lives back to what um, the new normal looks like. What, what you'll see in um, the collective strategies, and I should note that these strategies are a result of a tremendous amount of work from health and safety experts um, within the organization, outside the organization, guidance, evolving guidance, as you all know, and we learn more about uh, this illness and its transmission every day. And so there's a lot of agility in managing appropriately. There is an art and a science to everything in medicine. And sometimes the art is harder than the science. So what you'll see in, in our guidance today is that the appropriate science and the things that we know will help uh, minimize transmission of the COVID virus are included extensively in, in this plan. Um, our organization that was involved, uh, it's hard to believe, six months ago um, when this started in the state of Washington and um, with the first patient that was identified there and has transitioned through you know, multiple states. We are a FEMA partner of the deployments in New York, New Jersey, um, much of the screening in airports. We've been partners with the feds in large organizations. So we have, we've learned a lot about what works in the art, what the science is, and how to translate that. I want to bullet point what I think are very important principles in, as we move forward. One is informed consent. So um, the people um, know um, or are learning, uh, individual people, about COVID, its transmission, and what they should do for protection. So um, the organization's already uh, begun with information to potential attendees. And for them to pay attention to their health, and if they are in um, a CDC-identified high-risk group, they should make a decision uh, about attendance or consult their healthcare um, practitioner or provider. I said before, it's important to coordinate with um, local health authorities, epidemiologists whose expertise, um, whose science is focused on identifying and managing um, uh, the transmission of infectious diseases. And one of the most important components of this plan is uh, decreased attendance. So the density of individuals in an outdoor venue, um, a large outdoor venue, is um, certainly something that will help to minimize transmission. And the um, we feel pretty strongly that the 25% range is uh, a very effective approach. Um, the... Uh, Expectations, pre-event communication, you will wear a mask and we are taking this seriously. And the good news is when we all work together and, and we take those steps, it helps to make the event um, safe and most importantly and enjoyable for those that are there. High-risk events, you know, the organization has done a tremendous job, and I would underline tremendous, of identifying those events that historically have been high-risk. And high-risk essentially means those environments where individuals um, would, would be in very large dense um, uh, areas and in a smaller footprint have been canceled. Um, they're screening every day for everyone who comes into the event. It's a stage screening. There's temperature screening um, of every attendee. They're given a non-removable um, uh, wristband to identify that they have been screened. If they are elevated, they go to a second level. So we've 
taken it one step further, including um, a an individual uh, EMT who would uh, include the other assessment uh, components of that. Um, the uh, temperature screening uh, component um, limits our uh, or identifies potentially anyone who shouldn't be moved in. Face covering. Uh, we now know in science, face coverings make a difference. And I think culturally, we're all realizing that that's an effective way to minimize transmission. And we are going to be supportive, and, but we're going to pay attention to, um, very similar to a, if you see something, say something. Culturally, we want to start setting, setting the stage that it is acceptable and we're all in this together. And our staff, um, the staff will be roving uh, through the venue with that specifically. Um, two things finally, uh, physical distancing, identifying signs, appropriate spacing, um, changing structurally entrance, changing entrance and exits have all been mapped out literally um, to the square foot and in the venue to maximize um, the potential and minimize um, that, that uh, potential for closeness. And then um, finally, uh, ongoing messaging. It's a great opportunity not only to remind folks for the event, but it's our hope that this becomes something that they will then take forward and as all of us that nationwide and all these events continue and incorporate that in their daily practice. So we're comfortable at this stage. We will monitor every day and work collaboratively with our healthcare partners to make sure that we're making the right decisions and we're doing it in a timely fashion. Thanks, uh, Dr. Rock. We appreciate that. We've shared with you all on the phone the steps we're taking, which we think are quite comprehensive, but there's another very important topic we need to discuss, and that's the steps our IMS guests must take to ensure everyone's health and safety. A successful event is going to take the buy-in and support from our fans, and we're confident we'll get it. As Hoosiers and I think uh, race fans here have always looked out for each other. Doug, you want to help us uh, get our spectators ready to attend the event? Yeah, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Dr. Rock. Appreciate all the effort that uh, that uh, you've put, you've given us as we've navigated through um, a certainly different time for the Indianapolis Motor Speedway. It will be the longest gap between Indianapolis 500s from 2019 to 2020 since we've had our big gap in World War II. So I know our fans are excited to get back to the Speedway and get back here and celebrate uh, in this facility that they so look forward to coming to. You know, folks that come to the Indianapolis 500 know that it's more than just a race and the facility is more than just a facility. It is a 300 acre complex inside our gates um, that they feel very intimate when they're here. They know where they're gonna sit, they know where they park, the traditions that happen every year. And we're doing the best we can to help them uh, have that similar feeling that makes these facilities so special for them when they come here. But we also, uh, like we really started doing in 2016, leading into the 100th running, uh, we're going to ask for our fans to really help us navigate through that. The last several years, you've heard us say, be prepared, plan ahead, and be patient when you come here. We're going to have a little bit of a twist on that for this year. We're definitely going to want fans to be prepared, but we're also going to want them to be smart and to be safe. And that's going to require our fans to listen to us, listen to the advice of folks like Dr. Rock, and that begins with making sure we're taking care of each other. But when you get here, uh, you will receive a face mask uh, and a hand sanitizer. And we expect you to put that, that face mask on and wear it while you're inside the facility with the exception of those times that you're eating or drinking. This is the biggest thing that we can do as fans 
to ensure that the Indianapolis 500 and all of us uh, do it in a responsible way. Starting at the end of June, we asked our customers to uh, let us know uh, if they wanted to come to the Indianapolis 500 this year and to tell us how many of the tickets that they wanted uh, to use when they came here. That's, that process went very smoothly. It's an indicator that our fans want this to happen, and it's an indicator that our fans are going to listen uh, and follow the procedures that we set forth to make sure that we can have this race. One of the things that we've encouraged folks to do, if you're over 65 or you're in a high-risk category, we're asking you to please consider taking this year off. If you're not feeling well the day of the race, please consider staying home. When you get here, in addition to wearing a mask, we're going to ask that you respect distances with others. We will help you when you're in concession stands and restrooms with the way the facilities mark so that we can make sure that in those high traffic areas that we're main maintaining the proper distances. And then when you're in your seats, you're going to notice that your seats are going to be distanced in a way that they have not been here in the Indianapolis Motor Speedway before to make sure that we're keeping you safe. And again, we're gonna ask you to keep your masks on. Even though there may not be somebody sitting right next to you, uh, we're gonna ask that you wear that mask. We've also talked over the last several years about the importance of our IMS app and our IMS website, ims.com slash plan ahead. It's no more important this year, or there's never been a year it has been uh, more important than it is this year. We will continue from the moment this press conference uh, ends uh, through race day and and throughout the race itself, communicating with you, uh, our fans, on the things that we need you to do to ensure that we do this in a responsible fashion. I get a chance to talk to 10 customers every night on my way home, and I know how passionate our customers are for, this, for the 500, and I know that our customers want this to happen, and I know that our fans are going to participate. So we look forward to uh, operating the Indianapolis 500 this year uh, with these restrictions and plans in place. While we're certainly going to feel a lot different this year, a lot of the things will feel the same. It is the place that we all plan on gathering one time a year. It is our opportunity to celebrate those 33 men and women uh, who put everything on the line to get a chance to win to win at the Indianapolis 500, see their face on the board warning board Warner, board Warner trophy, and hoist that glass of milk that's so uh, much a part of the Indianapolis 500. So we're looking forward to a healthy, fun, fast race day. Huge props to all of the local race fans for following COVID-19 safety protocols of the local racetracks. You're doing a great job so racing can continue in the western Pennsylvania area. That does it for this edition of the Pittsburgh Racing Now podcast. Extra special thanks to Aaron Reitzel, Matthew Dillner, Chip Ganassi, Mark Miles, and Doug Bowles. And thank you, race fans, for your continued support. July has been PittsburghRacingNow.com's best month ever. Stay up on all the news, both locally and nationally, by clicking on PittsburghRacingNow.com every day. Any use or production of this podcast without the express written consent of Pittsburgh Racing Now is strictly prohibited. Until next time, I'm Scott Stiller.